How old are you right now exactly? A hundred and two and three quarters. <laughs> Meet Dr. Gladys McGarry. He's 102 years old. He is also a doctor. Known as the mother of holistic medicine. She wrote this book, The Well-Lived Life. He said, to be truly alive, we must find the life force within ourselves and direct our energy towards it. They had never even thought of a woman doctor in that town. I had no place to sleep. The men had rooms, but there was no room for a woman. So I got the x-ray table with a blanket and a pillow. It was a matter of being kicked out, but then being brought back in. 102 three quarters right now. What are three truths you've learned throughout this entire journey you've been through in life? First one is... Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Dr. Gladys, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here in Colombia, yet. <laughs> in Colombia. I wish we were doing this in person. It'd definitely be more more exciting, right? Especially if we're, you know, throwing in some Spanish here and there. <laughs> well, this is amazing. The fact that we can do this is amazing. Mm, absolutely, especially. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to go through your history. It's not every day that I get to have the opportunity to speak to a, a doctor that's lived through different generations that's seen the origins of how, you know, holistic medicine has really found, you know, we, a lot of people are widely are claiming you as the mother of holistic medicine. And I want to just dig through your story. It's such a fascinating one. And I just want to remind people, uh, how old are you right now? Exactly. A hundred and two and three quarters. <laughs> wow. A hundred and three in November. <laughs> My God. Well, I would say first guest we've ever spoken to that's over a hundred. Never the mind the fact that you're a doctor that's, you know, really popularized and founded the, the holistic medicine space. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the origins of that. And, you know, you talk about your story of starting a holistic medicine practice back in what year was that when you first started that? Well, we, we, we became uh, official <laughs> in 1973. The American Medical Association took its a sort of official name mm. in 1973. We've been working with it a long time before that, but yeah. You know. But walk me through when you first started. I mean, this is t a, t a different time for women as well, right? This is back when I think you mentioned that, you know, w women weren't even able to have bank accounts back then when you first originally started to practice. I mean, what were the inspirations that kind of drew you to practicing holistic medicine in the first place? My parents 
because my parents were medical missionaries in India and my mother was an osteopath. So in 1913, she got her uh, license when women really, really weren't even wow. looked at, you know, so, except in, in, in the kind of alternative fields like osteopathy, which was just being, uh, AT still was just creating the whole, whole concept of osteopathic medicine. And my parents were, they met in that school. So it, uh, it's a, um, she being the person that she was, was a, uh, really like a fly of bright light for me as I was growing up because I saw how she could work with the, the people in India that, that, you know, because my parents then went to India as medical missionaries and took their medical work out into the villages of North India up in the jungles. And the way she maneuvered through the medical fields and did the work that she did was imprinted on my life in a way that I knew that's the way, that's what I wanted to do, and that's the way I wanted to practice medicine. And so when I got into the whole field, when, when I, in 1941, I started medical school in September, and the war started in December. So, you know, the whole time I was in medical school, the world was focused on killing and getting rid of things you know the, we, that was the that was the focus of medicine which then of course in medicine included diseases and i had to rethink what i was being taught enough so that the that the dean sent me to the psychiatrist two different times <laughs> because I thought there was much more to this than the disease. There was more to the whole thing that we were, we were learning and learning about, I was looking for. And um, so it, it took pushing beyond the boundaries, even of the medical school that I was in, which was Women's Medical College in Philadelphia. Sorry, what specifically were you guys being taught? And was it was it really around eliminating diseases that were occurring at that time rather than around prevention? Oh, well, absolutely. <clears throat> the whole idea was that our job is to, was to learn how to get rid of disease and pain. And uh, getting rid of pain put us into the whole... Um, world of birthing, which was very important to me in my, and the way I'm thinking, the way I'm still thinking that this is a very, very important aspect of it. And in those days, when I was taught this, we were women, in fact, I personally had my first two sons um, born with what we called twilight sleep which was the patient, the mother, was totally anesthetized. Mm. I didn't know that I had a son for 24 hours because I was so complete not with it 
when the birthing process was being born. And this was, uh, it wasn't just here in the United States. It was almost every place where this was considered the modern way of birthing in this world. Um, I don't know where all the other, but I know there were other countries that were doing it. So when, when the mother was completely anesthetized, the doctor or the midwife's job then was to get that baby out while the mother couldn't push up anything. Hmm. So we had to use forceps. And um, I was very good at using forceps. I learned how to do that and, and was able to do it during all those years. And it was, um, I think as I look back on what happened during those years, um, was that we really removed from women who are the, the people who can birth babies, you know, we took their power away from them. Hmm. So that now, even to this day, we talk about, as physicians, we talk about uh, birthing babies as having been delivered of the baby. In other words, there had to be someone else that had to deliver the baby. The way I look at it, we deliver pizzas and we deliver speeches, but we don't deliver babies. Mothers birth babies. And we I, I'm really um, committed to giving the power back to the birthing mother because that's where it belongs. Mm. And it's and and uh, it, it's a process that it's it's reconnecting itself to the reality that we as women, we know what to do. We've been doing it from the beginning of time. And so just give us back our power and let's see what we can do. And it's amazing. Yeah, yeah and you've been fighting that battle for, for decades since the early start of your career. I'm curious, when you first started, when, you know, going back to the fact that women didn't have as many rights as that time before, who are the types of clients that were coming to see you? And how did you manage to build that reputable credibility as you were growing your practice? I'm curious with such a disadvantage of starting a practice like that at that time. It took a lot of time, but it, circumstances worked uh, over a period of time. When we, st after I finished medical school, um, I had an internship in, in the hospital, Deaconess Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. And they had never had a woman doctor there before. So they, when, when they gave rooms to, to the residents for, for when we stayed overnight, you know, when there was a, a, a time when we were had to be at the hospital at night, we, I had no place to sleep. The men had rooms, but there was no room for a woman. So I got the x-ray table with a blanket and a pillow, which wow. was all right with me because I was so happy to actually be in the position of doing it. That so I'd sleep where I had to sleep in order that I could do that because it was, it was important to me to get the, to get the, training that I was looking for, and that was good. So, that, you know, 
but when um, when we, st my husband and he, I met my husband, we got married, medical school and all of that. We went to a small town in Ohio on the river. It was his hometown. And they had never even thought of a woman doctor in that town. And there were many times when I, like, I went in this one specific time, this woman, obviously, she, she had called for the doctor and I went and um, she had an obvious uh, appendicitis. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll make arrangements. We'll get you in the hospital and get this taken care of. And she said to me, you get out of here. You yeah, go back to your babies and leave it. You know, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. All that stuff. So I called my husband and I said, you know, how about taking this? So he came over, did the same thing I had done, got her in the hospital. So for two years, um, the, this little town tried to put me in context. And it was a matter of uh, being kicked out, but then being brought back in. But then, but then my husband was called back into the war, the Korean War because he was a flight surgeon and so he was caught and so then i was doctor and job they had to, to you know if they needed a doctor they had to p find me mm. so that was very um helpful in that time so that by the time i left the town um uh, which was nine years later um they there was no question about who I was and what, what I was doing. So, you know, it takes, the thing that's so beautiful about life is that time and circumstances and just moving ahead, keeping your eye on the, on the uh, purpose for which you are working this hard. If you keep that clear and your mind straight on that, in that path, it takes time. It mm. takes time. And you can't afford to get upset by people who are upset by you being who you are. It just mm. isn't worth it. And what was that vision you were trying to, that you've, you've focused so closely on since you started your practice? What was the goal for you or mission that you wanted to accomplish? Well, the thing that I found out <clears throat> was that, and I truly believe is that love is the great healer. Love is the great medicine. Love is a medicine that transforms empty sound and talk into actual healing. My oldest son <clears throat> is a, a, a retired orthopedic surgeon, and but when he was ready to get into his practice, he came through Phoenix and he uh, said to me, you know, he was going down to Del Rio, Texas, starting his orthopedic uh, practice. He said, Mom, I'm real scared. He said, I have all this amazing training, and I'm going into the world, and I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. I don't know if I can handle that. And I said to him, well, Carl, if you think you're the one who does the healing, you have a right to be scared. But if you can understand that it's your job to do what you've been trained to do, which is awesome. I mean, orthopedic work 
if you have some some part of your body that needs help and there's an orthopedic person around those that's the person you want to have work with you because they know what they're doing they they know orthopedics but in the process of doing that when you have done your job to the best of your ability you then turn the process of actual healing over to the physician within the patient who does the healing because it's that cooperation between the doctor on the outside and the doctor on the inside we needed to work together and it was understanding this i i understood at some level that that's what my parents were doing i understood at some level that that's exactly what i was looking for and the 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 modalities that you used whether they were even diet or anything else that you incorporate into what it is that you're working with the patient with for if they can't even understand because you are so technical or whatever it is that you're doing it it doesn't it doesn't help but if you can understand the patient enough that you can really relate to them in a loving way that activates the physician within them who can then be your colleague in the whole process of healing the modality becomes secondary to that because the important thing is the love connection because in the love in the long run it's love that's the great healer hmm. Hmm. yeah it's a powerful opinion. statement it's a powerful statement and i don't think this is really popularized or talked a lot about in western medicine where we often resort to pharmaceutical methods or scientific methods where you know more of the traditional path i guess i would say and i want to kind of take you back to your times in india where you must have seen very different methods of practicing and healing versus some of the traditional methods that we have today and i've experienced it a little bit being born in korea there are certain methods that are taught there and coming into you know canada and the us that just did not exist right and i saw that contrast i'd love to kind of get your perspective on like what are some of the things that are practiced in places like india that you saw growing up or that you, that your parents saw that just do not exist today in western medicine that you think are very impactful that maybe are just diminished in the western society well the, the one that just screams at me about that is acupuncture because we brought acupuncture back into the states um uh, acupuncture was totally unknown and uh it was in the uh 70s <clears throat> the early early 70s that um we we had a our practice here in in, in Arizona and my husband is writing a a a monthly newsletter called Pathways to Health and this one time it, it we got an answer from a, a mailman 
and, and those those newsletters weren't out to people who who would apply for them. You know, they, across the country, right? A, a newsletter, a a a letter from a mailman in Maine, who said, "I got your newsletter, and you were talking about." Uh, and he said, "I've had." ankle that has been hurt and nobody knows what to do with it. I've gone to doctor after doctor. For three months, I have not been able to walk my route. And he said, I've I've been laid up. But he said, I got your newsletter and you talked about using a castor oil pack on your neck for a sore throat. So he said, I put a castor oil pack on my neck because I had a sore throat and my ankle cleared up. Hmm. He said, now, if you can tell me why that happened, I'd be really happy. And Bill and I looked at each other and we said, we don't have a clue. So he began writing the the next newsletter that went out, we told that story. And we got an answer from a um, physician in Italy who said, if you knew anything about acupuncture, you would know that the meridian that started up by the nose went all down the neck and the body to the toe went through the ankle and took away the the uh, obstruction that was there, was in the neck. <clears throat> when that was gone in, in the neck, it was, it was taken out in the ankle too it, because the meridian was clean, cleared. Mm. And we said, well, you know, what's this acupuncture stuff? What's this meridian stuff? But because we were interested and we knew that there was something happening there, we followed through on it and got more and got more and more information about it until we had on in uh, 73, we had the first acupuncture symposium in the States at Stanford University, and uh, and were able, and that's the the point at which acupuncture came into the whole field of medicine. So you know, it's it's incidents like that here and there and here and there that bring like does life does things that way. Life yeah. brings things in, and if you're looking for them, and and if if it's something that's part of what is in your in the in your point of view and you can fit it in there and you do it it takes root and so it was having things like acupuncture like homeopathy like the understanding of of the very energy patterns that are in our body and therapeutic touch and uh, all of these other things that were considered really, really woo-woo in the, in the medical field. But there were enough physicians around beginning to think about like things uh, that we were able to create the American Holistic Medical Association. And why do you think in Western society people think of that as woo-woo? Well, anything that, that isn't... <laughs> well... No, you know what it is? Anything that's low, labeled woo, it's, it's, that's it. 
you can take most, you know, uh, the same na names that I've been called, <laughs> I, don't, I will never <laughs> repeat because uh, it was that crazy in those mm. times. But those were things I'd seen my parents do. They, you know, they go out into the jungles of India and they don't have any equipment with them except what they have in this little trunk. And I mean, you know, it's, it's important equipment they can use, but it was the way in which they treated the patient. It was, it was the way in which they accepted what the patient was doing and saying, and were able to let the patient know how they could change their lives, that the patient could change their lives enough so that they could be able to um, work with whatever it is, the disease process they were working with. And it's, it's that kind of understanding that we're all in this together. There's nobody that's, we're hu human beings living the same kind of life with the same kind of body, the same kind of cells that know what's going on, the same kind of nervous system. And it's, it's, it's awesome how our bodies know what to do. Yeah, it's a remarkable thing how connected everything is. And it is unfortunate that when we're limited to everything being FDA approved for it, for it to have some sort of legitimacy or needing 100 years of case studies. I mean, when you think about, you know, you hear stories of people that come from the Amazons where they said that without any pills, any pharmacy, they can pretty much heal and cure any sort of, you know, these common pains or infections or illnesses just by using the different plants that exist within the Amazons. And people that are actually from there know how to navigate these different things that maybe probably in most people around the world aren't even aware of, right? Because we're just accustomed to going to the pharmacy or using antibiotics. And I don't know too much about acupuncture to comment for myself, but I certainly know people that have had back pain for years and years without really being able to explain what that was, but they are able to heal some sort of trauma that they've had, whether it's through some sort of plant medicine or just going through, you know, internal work themselves. And then all of a sudden having that be gone. And it's remarkable. It's unexplainable. But these are all the things that you're talking about around holistic medicine that you know, is now legitimized for sure with acupuncture being such a common thing. But I just imagine like how hard of a battle it was that you must have fought to make that a legitimate thing. But the beautiful thing, beautiful thing about it was we were learning things uh, because, <clears throat> because we listened to other people and um, found out, like for instance, castor oil, the, the healing power of castor oil Castor oil is called the palm of Christi or the palm of Christ. And so uh, that energy with the oil itself, and it's known around the world for its healing power. But for back pain, put a hot castor oil pack on your back, and you'd be amazed at, at, at the uh, healing oil. that takes place. And in fact, my children say they're going to put on my tombstone here she lies in spite of castor oil <laughs> because 
<laughs> I used it on them so much and on my patients so much and everything. So, and still do, you know, it's, it's the, uh, I think in German it's called Wunderbaum and mm. in, uh, and I forget what it is in Hindustani. Huh. But anyway, it's been known since the beginning of time, probably, that this oil is has so much in the way of cleaning up the body, getting the debris out of the body so that the healing can happen. Hmm. And is that for like back pain, specific muscle pains, or no, what, what specifically is it used for? How long list do you want? <laughs> Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's amazing how it really, it's a, just a very healing process. And because it cleans up the lymphatics, it cleans out and you get the lymphatic system cleaned out and healing starts happening. Mm. And where can you just get that at the grocery store? Like where are the ways that well, most people can, can get it? Oh, you want to get cold pressed castor oil. You mm. don't want the kind that, that's been doctored up to, to take internally. You get the one that you, you know, it's it's cold pressed castor oil. You can, I don't know here you can get. It. I don't know if you can get it in Colombia, but you yeah, know. it's fascinating. Uh, another one that I've been personally taking is ashwanga, which I understand is used in some um, healing practices, um, in, in in certain types of med 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 medical practices, and not med medical practices, but more like. Um, um, Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's a recent one that's now becoming more popular. So I would imagine there are infinite amounts of these oh. that we just have not discovered like, yet. Um, yeah. Are there any other ones that come to mind that maybe are not as popularized that can treat common pains or illnesses that may, most people don't know about? Well, people that... That understand about therapeutic touch can have amazing things happen. Uh, a mother's kiss on a child's boo boo is healing. You know, it's that the allowing ourselves to <clears throat> see how love works in and out of our lives, and then take 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 the steps that lead us to that. You know, I was talking to one of the uh, one of the uh, directors of a big hospital here a few years back, and he said, "You know, I don't know how we're going to be able to integrate the the osteopaths, the homeopaths, the chiropractors, the you know." And he went through a list of names of different people. How we're going to integrate their practices? into our hospitals. He said, I, I don't understand how we're going to do that. And I, I said, well, you know, if you think that the, the practice itself is what's doing the real healing, uh, you won't be able to. But if you can understand that the love with which that practice is done is what's doing the healing, you can bring the practice in and see what happens. See how that person, that particular person can use the modality that they have uh, studied or worked with, whether it's nutrition, whatever it is, 
and see what they can do as they're reaching to the patient with love and carry. And uh, I think you'll find amazing things happening. Mm. Yeah. Um, talk to me a bit about implementing that because I'm, let's say, you know, a listener is listening to this right now and perhaps they've given up on love. Perhaps they've gone through trauma in their lives where, you know, they, they have a certain misconception about what love is supposed to mean. I'd love to know, like, what does that mean for you? What, what does the idea of giving more love, seeing the world in a more loving light and how someone like someone that has had these negative experiences could embrace that and implement that into their lives? I don't think there's any one of us who has not had dark times, who has not had pain uh, and pain, emotional pain, psychological pain, physical pain. I mean, we're human beings and we've all faced these aspects of our humanity, which can either get us stuck or we can allow ourselves to keep on looking for the light. And the light that we're looking for is that aspect of our within our own being that allows us to see the light. Because if you're not looking for it, you don't see it. You know, right. it, it's just not there for you. And if you're stuck and, they, and you know you're stuck and you're going to be stuck and they're not going to be anything else, you'll be stuck. But if you can keep looking for the light, I sort of see it like this. Um, if I'm calling, carrying a flashlight on my path and I'm walking down my path and it's a dark path and I can see from one step to the next to the step, I can't take any steps off the path because I can't see off the path or anything, but I can go that way. I can take that step. And as I'm taking my path and watching on my light, if I see a little flickering light over to the right or to the left or something, if I add my light to that, all of a sudden it blows up their light and they may see something. They may be somebody who's walking down a path that's parallel or right, or even on my path, but they haven't been looking for anything until they're going along and then somebody else's light shines. You know, you hear something, you read something, you sing something, something happens. When I was working on this book, this friend of mine who was helping with, with the working on it, working out the words, we spent hours, I think it must have been three hours one day, trying to explain love. Yeah, and we we tried and we tried, and then we finally 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 came up with the understanding that since the beginning since the beginning of time, we have been trying to put words around love, songs around it. We had stories about love. We've had paintings and we've had uh, music about you know. We have known about love. And we've talked about it, but the interesting thing is that if enough, if a person has never experienced love, 
you can't explain it to them. It's like if you if uh, if you have a person who was born blind, and you try to explain to them the color of green, he can't understand it. And if a person has never experienced love, whether it's a love of a plant, or a love of a dog, or a love of anything, if you and and I think there pro- there are people who are in that really, really difficult place because they've never, well, I can't, I won't make that statement. If Because if you don't look for it, you don't see it. And so it's that real, real, realization within our own being that there's something out there that I want to look for. That it's past this dark space that I'm in. And we've all got our dark places. I don't, you know, if we want to just stay in that, like, you know, it's, it's sort of like this. If you cut your arm and you keep picking and it scabs over and you keep picking at that scab, it, it'll never heal. But if you do the things that you need to do to let it heal, it'll heal by itself. And someday you'll come back and you'll, oh, I know who you are. The scar will remind you what it is but you don't have any pain in it anymore. Mm. You know, it's that kind of a thing. If you focus on the pain, on the darkness, on the awfulness of, of things, you're stuck in it. My mother taught me a lot about that, um, <clears throat> both in the fact that she was able to find a sense of humor in almost in things that, you know, you would never think about like a week before she died at the age of 98 she we were sitting on our porch and she and my dad were looking at the garden and she said to my dad look at that petunia plant must be 400 blossoms on that plant and my dad says oh Beth they're not more than 40 she says what's another zero you know she had that ability to take a statement and not argue with it, but just put something in it that made you laugh. You know, you, mm. you can't help it. And so then a week later, she fell and uh, broke her knee, broke her ribs, and my dad and I were moving her from the gurney over onto the x-ray table. She saw the pain in our faces, and she says, the old gray mare, she ain't what she used to be. And the next day she died. But it was that kind of a of a living person that I had as a mother who taught me how to look at things for in a in a way that either could be uh, turned and made humorous or dispatched because. Um, my sister and I were in our 90s one time, and we were talking, and we would do this kind of a movement, and we'd say something, and we'd do that. And all, all of a sudden, we stopped, and we looked at each other, and we said, why do we do this? <laughs> and, 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 you know, it was just, just uh, it was something that we just did. Yeah. And then, then we said, well, who, who did that? 
We said, Mama did it. And then together with one voice, we said, oh, Kuchpurwani, which in Hindustani means it doesn't matter. Mm. And we realized that we had gone through our lives doing this hand movement when something's happened that really, really were, we, we had to put into context with other things. Like somebody had said something mean to us. I could take that meanness and take it in and say, that was awfully mean and it hurt me and I'm hurt by that, and then hang on to that. Or we could just take it in our hand, get it in our hand, say, close it down and then drop it down and say, it doesn't matter. Kuchparwane, it just absolutely foolishness. Yeah. And we got through, we realized that we got to all kinds of difficult things by doing that. And even not trivial things, some of the really difficult things that happened in life, realizing that we had the choice of whether that was going to color the rest of our lives or whether we were going to just let it go. It just isn't that important. And, yeah. and it's being able to understand. See, I have this kind of an idea. I don't, I, I, this is just my idea. That when God, whatever we each one, we have our own uh, concept of what God is, that's it's our own personal stuff, created the earth and created us human beings and all that was in the earth. And he, and he looked at the earth and all that was in it, and it was beautiful, and everything was right. And then he created us humans, human beings. And he said to us, "Now, I now give you. You are the only beings on this earth who have free will and free choice. And I now give you dominion over all the earth." Mm. And we, in our arrogance, thought he said dominance. So we took over. And look at what we've done to Mother Earth. Look at what we've done to each other. Look at what, you know, it's that kind of, of a reality that we have the option of either choosing, reaching back to our true humanity, which is what E.T. was doing when he was looking for home, you know, he wanted to go home. But I think within our being is that essence that is reaching for our true humanity, which is an aspect of our being that knows that we have not only the right, but the responsibility and the privilege of taking care of Mother Earth and each other. No matter who we are, or no matter what the circumstances are, and that doesn't exclude ourselves. Mm. We have to, we don't have to do anything. We, the good idea to learn to love yourself. And in yeah. the process, that's not arrogance, that's recognizing who you really are. And if you can do that, it changes things. It really does. Yeah, I think when someone hurts us, you know, we tend to 
you know, it's human nature, I think it's to, to kind of wind up and protect ourselves so that we don't have to relive those experiences again. And I know you've personally been through these difficult times. Uh, I think at the age of 70, you went through a very difficult divorce and you were together for around 45, 46 years. And I understand how difficult that time was for you. What were the lessons you've learned about love and forgiveness, you know, at, at a difficult time like that, when you guys have, you know, built your entire lives together? And how have you kind of taken those lessons to, to live your life? I had to focus on what we had done together, the joy that we had had together. And I can look back on it now and realize that I don't regret one moment that I spent with Bill Mil Bill McGarry because we had a great life together. But then he took a vacation, you know. It took me a long time to get to that point because I was so devastated and hurt and and, and stuck in the place where I was really, you know, I lost, in, my, in my thinking at that time, I had everything that we had built together was gone. You know, we had built, we had these six amazing children. We had the amazing practice. We started the American Holistic Medical, you know, on and on. And this whole list of stuff. And it was, it felt like it was all gone. But when I, I this one day, you know, something, sometimes things happen real specifically. I was driving home from work and to, home, to an empty house and feeling very sorry for myself and hurt and damaged. And I, I was really screaming in the car. I was mm. yelling and letting the universe know how hurt this was and how terrible it was and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden I pulled over to the side of the road and I stopped the car and the voice that, well, it was the verse came into my mind. This is a day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And as soon as I got that in my mind, it took I put a whole new uh, lens in my glasses. I could see things in a whole different way. And I went home and I changed my car license plate and had be glad on my license plate so that every time I got into the car, I was faced with the be glad idea. And when I was driving, so I had that license plate until I stopped uh, practice active medicine, until I retired. Uh, so every time I drove through, through the streets of Phoenix, the person behind me was getting the message, be glad. It was that kind of a, a, a wake-up call for me. And as I um, focused on that, I finally wrote Bill a letter and thanked him for giving me my independence because I had depended so much on him to do various things, you know, that, that I felt we were a team, and we were. But when I was kind of booted out into the <laughs> universe, I had to sink or swim 
nobody was going to do this for me. I had to do it mm. myself. And when I claimed, when the be glad thing allowed me to claim my independence and work on that, and I've been able to create a whole new life and mm. an amazing life since then. Yeah, I, th I think when oftentimes when we go through a hard breakup, especially, you know, a, a marriage of 45 years, I think we often resort to putting a negative light on someone, yet it seems like you did the complete opposite. And well, is that, time. yeah, it is that time. the advice? Right. It took time for sure. But I guess it ultimately the lesson you learned was to forgive and to love. Is that something you recommend? to people like writing a letter even maybe you don't even have to share it to someone but just something that you can express as if you're talking to them through forgiveness and love absolutely i mean anything that works for you but the point you know we we tell people just get over it i don't think that's good advice at all yeah i think it's you have to live through it and if you can live through it you learn the lessons that come with that uh, horror, whatever it was, that experience that you went through, if you lived through it, like getting that be glad experience, you know, I, because my soul was reaching for something to hang on to. I, I needed to have something that was more than what I was dealing with because that was tearing me apart. And I finally got it when that, when I understood that. And it can happen with anything. It, it, you know, some you may you may hear a song. You may somebody a friend may say something to you that gives you the key to what it is that you've been looking for. Because if you're looking for it, you'll find it. Yeah. If you're not looking for it, no matter who's says it or does it or whatever it is, it, you won't see it. I yeah. have these, these five uh, L's that I call sort of a foundation for, for building a philosophy. And the first two, the first one is life. Life by itself is uh, like a, a seed in the pyramid. It's there, it's been there 5,000 years, it's got all the energy of the universe in it, and it can't do anything until love, in the form of light and water and so on, makes that seed crack, and life can really enter in and join with the, the life within the seed, and then it can grow. It's like the sperm and the ovum. They're two separate entities and they don't, they, you know, they don't bring any life to each other until they unite. Mm. And then they become a pregnancy. And that pregnancy is the mother has that privilege of housing this being growing within her, which she, the, the, the baby is a complete entity unto itself. No, it's not as long as it's in the, in the uterus. Because 
Everything she eats, it eats. Everything she thinks, the baby thinks. I mean, all of the emotions that she has, the baby feels, and she is, is like all the parts of our body we know are tied together. Well, as long as there's a pregnancy, that's all part of that. But when the baby takes its first breath, it becomes its own entity. Yeah. Until that, but at that point, it takes responsibility for itself. It takes its first breath and it becomes a human being. And it's that inner uh, awareness that we all have for <clears throat> for who and what we are that allows us to keep on becoming human beings. I noticed that you kept. You mentioned your husband's name is Bill, Bill McGarry. I noticed that you kept the last name. Was there a specific reason for that? Yes, because my license and everything else was on, I mean, you know, McGarry. Oh, I see. I Got mean, it. yeah. The things that we had written together, the, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's part of your history now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I... I want to shift towards longevity a bit and talk to you a little bit about the differences between health span and lifespan. You know, when I have even conversations with with my mom or people in my family, where you know you you talk about these luminous questions about life and how long you want to live, would you want to live forever? You know, these are just questions that you have in you know at, at 12 a.m. at night when you're when you're rooming around. And a lot of people, I get the patterns that they don't want to live that long. They don't want to live to a hundred. And oftentimes, when I when I dig deeper, it's because they often say that they don't want to live with illness. They don't want to live when they're sick. Uh, they kind of associate sickness and illness oftentimes with growing older. And I want to get your perspective. You're you're 102. In three quarters, I believe now. Yes. <laughs> and you're still vibrant. You're 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 mentally sharp. You're you're energetic. Like there's a certain energy about you at that age. And I want to get your thoughts on how you perceive longevity based on where you are now. I think it's what you're reaching for. See, I mean this this concept of, about our true humanity. I think that's, that's the combination of life and love, those two uh, elements that are so essential. And as we bring life, love together and experience it and let ourselves experience it and reach out to others who are having a hard time with it. I mean, life is a hoot. You know, when you try, when you begin to see what's going on around you and in within you, and you realize that I have a, um, a friend who wakes up in the morning and she says, oh, not another day, mm. you know? And she tells me that. And I tried to talk to her about it. And she... Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, she doesn't want to hear it. 
it's because she's not, that, that's not what she's looking for. And I started to tell you the five L's and I didn't get past the Please. first two. So let me go off on that tangent now. The third one, the first two are life and love. Okay. The third one is laughter. Laughter without love is empty sound. It's, it's, it's mean, it's cruel. Families are torn apart by it. You know, if it's, if it's not with love, it's, it can be just really damaging. But laughter with love is joy and happiness. So what are we looking for? You know, if my friend is looking for a dreary, dragged out day, she'll get a dreary, dragged out day. If she's look for, looking for love and happiness, she'll find it because it's, it, it's there to be found. The, third, the fourth one is, is labor. First one is is labor. Labor without love is drudgery. It's hard. It, you know, you drag yourself to work. Too many diapers. They're just too much to do. But labor with love is bliss. It's why a singer sings. It's why a painter paints. It's why you do what you're doing. It's why I do what I'm doing. You work twice, <laughs> ten times as hard because you have that inner life force that's calling you. So labor with love is bliss. The fifth one is listening. Listening without love is conging, clanging, gong. You, do, you don't hear anything. My friend that I'm talking about who wakes up like that, she's not listening. She, she really doesn't want to hear it. Mm. Someplace along the line, maybe something will happen that will uh, awaken her and she'll say, oh, yeah, that's what we've been talking about. <laughs> but it may, and it may not. I mean, she may just make, make her transition with that uh, attitude. But whatever it is, it's what we choose, what we as human beings choose to make of our lives. And... You know, I had the wonderful example of parents who lived their lives to the, you know, they, li they lived to be 98, my dad was 96, my mother was 98. So they kind of lived their lives at the fullest and then they kind of went off the cliff and died. It's, it's just um, how you choose to live your life. And for me, I don't, I don't really know how long I'm going to live. I don't know from one day to the next whether I'm going to live the next day. You know, I mean, that's, that's okay. Whatever it is, it's going to be a good one. And, um, and I'm looking forward to it. So it's, it's, it's what we reach for. Hmm. And if we're reaching for pain and suffering and, and not, anything that gives us life and love, then that's what we'll get. Yeah. And is that a, is that a key difference you think with between your friend and you, where you're so excited to get up, you feel this sense of excitement and energy is that you have this focus on purpose and yeah. providing value and love to others 
And you think that's really the key difference between how you guys perceive life and what contributed maybe to the longevity and the health of how long you've been on earth. Absolutely. And we've known each other for years, you know. So we've talked about these things, but it's, it's, it's what we choose to put within ourselves and um, feed ourselves with. You know, the kind of food we feed ourselves, our bodies, we, the kind of food we feed our minds and our spirits are just as important and maybe more important. Yeah. And, you know, if you can get a sense of humor, I, I just have to tell this story because I think it's so funny. Yeah, please. Um, I had just had my 99th birthday party and I was coming out of the grocery store with my cart of groceries and I was still driving at that time. And so I'm starting to pick my groceries up and put them in the car. And this elderly gentleman comes by and he says, oh, may I help you? And I said, no, no, I can do this myself. And uh, he stands up tall and he says, well, I'm 86. Well, somehow that pushed a button in me and I stood up higher. I said, and I'm 99. And I marched off into my car and sat down. And I sat down and I thought, you nasty old woman. He was just trying to be nice. You, and I thought I really should go into the, uh, into the grocery store and apologize to him. But then I got to laughing about it because I thought we were two, two kindergarten kids. You know, I'm bigger than you are or whatever it was we were right. puffing ourselves up about. I mean, to have that mini reaction, I thought to myself, this is a comedy scene. It, it's just it's just so funny, and I sat there laughing in my in my car, and I didn't go back and apologize because if he'd have thought about it and thought about it as funny, he'd be in the in the grocery store laughing, you know, because that that was really funny. <laughs> yeah, it's a contrast of differences, right? I think one person would have had their whole week ruined from that experience, constantly thinking about it from a negative light, yet you decided in one moment to turn that experience into a comedic relief moment where you were able to laugh about it, you were able to tell your friends about it, you're telling other people about the story now. I mean, think about the contrast between all of that and it was totally within your control, just like it is in everyone's control to let what they what they in, right? Yeah, I, I could have made more of a, you know, by going in and apologizing and making a big deal. But it, it really wasn't worth it. You know, it, it was worth a good laugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when when kind of aligned with that idea of longevity, you know, I don't know how much you follow these, this kind of movement of biohackers where they're jumping into cold plunge waters. They are laying on beds of infrared red lights. They're going into the sauna. They have these fancy gadgets that are measuring different biometrics around your body. And it's a huge industry now of people trying to live as long as you, but using the different technologies and science that are supposedly existing today. Yeah, here you are alive and well at 103 years old. You didn't have access to any of this. What are your thoughts 
when you hear about this movement of biohackers and people that are trying to live forever, you know, what, what's kind of the first thing that comes to you having lived through all, all this? Guy, God bless them. That, that's my answer to that. God bless them. If that's a choice and that's what they want to do, God bless you. Do it, you know, do what you want to do. And, and it may be a huge thing for you. It may really do that for you. You know, I, I, who am I to say? I, uh, I couldn't waste my time on it, but, um, you know, <laughs> for me, it's just kind of, you know, like uh, going back into the grocery store to apologize or something. You know, sometimes you just don't need to do that. But those people do. If they, if they need to do that, God bless them. Let them do it. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, so it's, no, no real opinions about it. It's like trying to tell everybody what they should eat. You know, I have a son who absolutely can't eat our garlic. And he, I mean, really, you don't want to be around him if he eats garlic. And the rest of our family loves garlic. So, you know, how do we make a family meal and have part of that without garlic in it? You know, it's because he can't tolerate, his body can't tolerate garlic. Hmm. And who's, to, who's to tell him or anybody else in the family that he should be eating garlic? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of diets, what are most of your diets comprised of? This is something I was really curious about. And has that changed over time? Oh, it depends on circumstances, but it's basically as fresh food as I can eat. And, uh, you know, just a, nor a reasonable amount of, of uh, protein and a reasonable amount of salt here in the Arizona, you need some salt because you sweat, you know, they're, they're where you're living and what's happening in your life. And uh, I love Indian food because I grew up with the Indian food, but um, it's, uh, I, I think it, it's what makes your body, as you pay attention to your body and how your body responds to different foods, you can be aware of what it is that your body really wants. And if you're, if, you're, if you're understanding something about nutrition, something about diet, and, and you've studied this and you know there's certain things, and you put that into context with it and use it, that's great. But if you're, if you're in a situation where the only thing you can eat is what you're being presented with, Bless it, and it'll work for you. Mm. You know, if if the food is uh, something that is blessed, it's transformed so that your body can take it and say, "Well, uh, okay, this is blessed. I can I can do this." Mm. And then you're not taking it in and saying, "Oh, you know, I've had patients who um, are so convinced." that certain things are bad for them to eat and they won't eat them. And, you know, so 
that's all right. If they don't want to eat them, that's, that's their choice. But sometimes it's just a thought form. Sometimes it's different. Food is transformed when we eat it. If we eat it with an attitude of gratitude and the body says, oh, yeah, this is good for me, the body takes it and it's good for us. You know, this whole business of stem cells, an interesting thing here. In 2006, I, um, we had a friend who had, was working on stem cell research in Costa Rica. And he was coming, he was up here and we were talking together. And he said, they found out something very interesting about these stem cells. In the laboratory that they were working, they had a certain, um, a certain laboratory that always got better results with the stem cells, both in the Petri dish and when they were implanted in the, within the patient. And this one, this one lab was doing that and they couldn't figure out what was happening in that lab because the protocol was all the same. Everything was the same with the other labs, but this one particular lab always got better results. And they, hmm. so he finally, they, they tried to figure out, he finally went and sat there a whole day watching what the technicians were doing and he said the thing that he found out was that there was one lab technician in that laboratory who loved the stem cells in the, whether they were in the Petri dish or whether they were being injected or whatever. The way he handled those stem cells, he said, was obvious. He was either saying a little prayer or he was doing something that was loving with the handling, the way he did those stem cells. And he said, it suddenly dawned on me that love is the healer. <laughs> and I said, wow. you know, this is it. Love is the healer. Even the stem cells understand that. So when, when, uh, when I understood that, I had a patient who, who was uh, going to have her knee replaced and she wanted to do the, um, I, I forget the name of the, the, the hike in Spain that it, people do. It's a wonderful hike. Anyway, it's, it's a, I think, an 18-day trek. And she'd all, her whole adult life, she'd wanted to do that. And she was going to have, to have this uh, knee replaced so that she could do that. Well, we got to talking about these stem cells and she said, you know, I, I she said, I've got six months before I, I'm have going to ha have the trip to do if I can do it and, and have the knee replaced and all that. She said, I'm going to try that. She said, I'm going to try working with my stem cells and seeing if I can love them enough that maybe they'll do the healing I don't know how she did it, but she did it, and she didn't have to have the need replaced, and she did the trek. Oh wow! So no stem cell, like no, no, no process needed. No, I mean she didn't. She was able, with her ability to 
conjure up what it was within herself <clears throat> about loving those stem cells and talking to them and working with them and uh, giving them the power of love to heal the, the, the tissue that was damaged so that she didn't need to have that transport, you know, and it worked. Wow. Was there anything specific she did that went through that process for people that may want to go through that? Nope. They have to find their own. I right. mean, it's different for uh, every person you're saying. It's the kind of thing those stem cells needed to have her love. And if you don't know what love is and you can't experience it, that's a difficult situation. But if you know what love is and you know you've experienced it and you know that you can, that you can love those stem cells or however you want to do it, but it has to be your own process. I couldn't tell her how to love her stem cells. I mm. could just tell her this story that I had just heard about how it was love that was really allowing those stem cells to do their work. Mm. And then she took it and she did her work on that. So it's that way, you know, you, you, uh, the, you know, my story about the, the my flashlight if my flashlight shone on her little flickering light and she took that and, and blew it into this whole picture for herself and did what she did, it's amazing. Hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. It's a very powerful story. Yeah. Um, Dr. Gladys, I am so appreciative of our conversation. I mean, this has got to be a, uh, a masterclass on mind body connection the, the connection of our souls how they can all work together to heal to love to appreciate this life that we have on earth and i want to make sure that we plug your book the, the latest one that just came out called the well well lived life i know you also have a forward with uh dr mark mark uh, hyman i believe yes. who i also follow and Definitely, we'll, we'll link that in the, in the links below, so make sure people check that out. And for my final question for you, there well, it I is, <laughs> the well-lived life. 102-year-old okay. and three-quarters now, <laughs> doctor's guide to a great life. Um, that really leads me to my last question, which is, you're 102, three-quarters right now, and you've seen the different healing practices from all the way from India to your parents, to living through the war, to where we are now in modern society and you're still practicing today, what are three truths or principles that you've learned throughout this entire journey you've been through in life that can benefit people, that can teach people about love, about living a better life? I think the... the <clears throat> first one is for us individually to accept our reality that we're in charge of our lives. That we, what, if we love our lives, if we love our bodies, if we love, if we love the things that are happening in our lives, and they may not be always kind, and they may not be always beautiful, but if, if we 
get the lessons from them that they are trying to teach us, then we'll live through them and we grow. If we don't, it's like my friend who doesn't like each day. You know, that's something that uh, I can't give her. I, I it's, it's not something that I can even demonstrate for her before, because she, she just can't understand what I'm talking about because she doesn't want to. And it's when you're really wanting to learn something and you're reaching for it for your, which I call my true humanity and your true humanity, and you're reaching for it, you'll find it. You'll find it. You just have to keep on. If you find yourself stuck, work a little harder. And if it's still stuck, work a little harder to look for the light and find it because it's there. Sun always comes up and the moon comes up. You know, these are things we can depend on. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Well, appreciate you, Dr. Gladys. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank and, you. Uh, we hope everyone checks out your book. Thank you. Thank you.